As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Vox Novus, the new voice. Vox Novus, the new dimension. Vox Novus, thought and movement leaders who will share from their experience and offer tools to help us navigate our rapidly changing world. My name is Victor Furman. Welcome to Vox Novus, the new voice. A mysterious traveler. A sentient canine, a psychotic patient, a mystifying, miraculous, and mind-bending trio arrive at the psych ward where a grieving psychiatrist is forced to confront his deepest fears and beliefs about the nature of consciousness and reality, even death. With his marriage, career, and life hanging by a thread, he faces demons both real and imagined, all the while being transformed forever in this inspiring story of hope, healing, and renewal. This is from the latest book by my guest this week on Vox Novus, psychotherapist Donald Altman. Donald Altman is a former monk, two-time Emmy Award winner, and an award-winning author of more than 20 books and CDs on mindfulness and spirituality. His website is mindfulpractices.com, and he joins me this week to share his path and new book, his first novel, Travelers. Please join me in welcoming to Vox Novus, Donald Altman. Welcome, Donald. Oh, well, hi, Victor. It's really great being on the program with you today. Thank you, sir. Donald, please share with our listeners your early path and how it led to your calling. Well, uh, my my path had a lot to do with uh, really early trauma and suffering that I see now as a blessing. Sometimes we don't ex- want to see that the difficult things in our life are actually guiding us toward a, toward a doorway that might actually help us grow. And that was a case with me, and I experienced uh, in my early 20s a major depressive disorder, Victor, and that um, during that time, I had a wonderful uh, therapist who helped me, but I also at that time started to have uh, different out-of-body and different uh, transcendental awareness experiences. And I think that sometimes when we're uh, feeling very oppressed, and um, constricted, which is what was happening to me with that depression, was so heavy that I was, uh, that something um, in consciousness kind of broke loose and it said, here's another view of things. You're more than this, right? You're not, this is, uh, you know, don't just define yourself by this depression and by what's happening to you right here or the conditions that led to it. And so it was very liberating for me. I mean, these were glimpses they didn't didn't stay for a real long time, but they were glimpses into a different uh, reality or different truth, and it gave me a sense of relief, and, and it and so I was able to go forward. And but it wasn't, it, it, but that stayed with me. And sometimes I would still have some of those experiences, um, but I found certain patterns repeating in my life, some painful patterns. And I was I was probably in my 40s when another one of these painful patterns repeated and produced some loss in my life. And I felt I really had to dig deeper 
I had to look within more deeply. And not just a few months before that happened, uh, there was a friend of mine who said, you know, uh, there's a monk there I'd like you to meet. It was kind of an unusual request. <laughs> but I went to meet this monk. His name was Uthi Lananda. He was from Burma. And he was a well-known teaching monk in the U.S. He'd come here in the late 70s, I believe. Uh, and he was in the, that's the Theravada, the old school of Buddhism. But what happened when I met him was I experienced something I had never experienced before. He had such this, this um, a sense of compassion and availability, and it was palpable. I could feel it. And that was kind of shocking to me. I mean, I grew up in Chicago and kind of a tough neighborhood, and you didn't see people like that typically anywhere. <laughs> so I wanted to know, how did he become like this? He wasn't born like that, I'm sure, right? Anyway, I kind of um, put that in the back of my mind. And then when this painful pattern repeated, I found out that I could ordain as a Buddhist monk with Thilananda as the head of the monastery, uh, the abbot or the siyada, as they're called. And this was in Southern California, uh, out in the, near the San Bernardino Mountains. And uh, it was a small monastery with, uh, you know, just a handful of monks. But there was a Burmese community around there, and that's how they were. They were very much supported by that community. And uh, it, was, it was an amazing experience for me. It was a real, again, another initiation. Uh, and uh, one of the first things they teach you when you're in the monastery, you go in and you're being initiated, they give you a new name. And my new name was Uwairama, and that meant right um, effort. And it's funny because when they gave me that name, I thought, how interesting. I've never put in the spiritual effort before. And somehow they must have seen that. And they gave me that name uh, as kind of a support, is saying, yeah, you can do this. You can put in the effort. And um, and then they shave your hair. And and um, so they were with a straight razor. And they were, Monk was shaving my hair. And then I was kind of surprised. One of them held up this lock of hair in front of me and said, uh, this is not you. It was kind of my first lesson in letting go, not grasping, um, not holding on to um, that ego, that sense of everything that we define ourselves by. And so it was a, it was an amazing journey for me, and, and, and Thilananda was a wonderful teacher. Now, I didn't stay in the monastery all that long. I I, I was actually very ripe for the experience. I think it doesn't matter how long you're in. It's it's where you are when you go in and, and your intention when you go in. Um, so I, I always felt most of my work was going to be out here in the world. and But I got some valuable lessons there and have continued actually to work with monks from that monastery afterwards and to get training even after I left. So I started doing workshops on mindful eating. I'd always been a mindless eater. And in the monastery, I learned a lot more about mindful eating. And I started doing workshops on that. And people would come up to me afterwards and they'd say, you know, Donald, um, and it almost go whisper it, whisper to me, I have this anorexia problem, or I have this bulimia problem, or whatever it was. And I realized I needed to go back to school uh, so I could work with them, not just in a spiritual way, but in a therapeutic clinical way and have some of that understanding. So I never would have imagined that going into the monastery would lead me to going back to school. I was 50 years old, uh, back to get a, uh, to graduate school in uh, counseling psychology and became a licensed uh, psychotherapist and worked in an eating disorder clinic and worked in a lot of these different kinds of psychiatric clinics, and then had my own clinic for several years. So I've had an opportunity to try to work with people with uh, mental health issues and uh, learned a lot about what works maybe or what doesn't work and and uh, the human condition really and how we need to find wholeness. So that really is kind of my path into what I'm what I'm doing now. Your bio describes you as a former monk. Now, with everything that you accomplished and with what you continue to do, why former? Well, uh, I always felt that I was very ready for the experience when I went in the monastery. I was uh, 
not uh, you can go into something dragging and kicking or can go in willingly and i went in willingly and ready to learn and ready to open up and what i found is kind of interesting is not all the monks some monks are in there and they were kind of haphazard with that's like okay they didn't seem to really be committed but i was very committed when i was in there and um, i got connected with another monk um uh, Ashin Thitsana, who now has his own monastery, but he was a very committed monk, and um, he was he was also a, a wonderful guide to me. But I felt that uh, I was ready to go, that I I learned the lessons that I needed to learn, and started to understand that patterning that was behind the suffering I had, and I wanted to go out and share that, and that and that's why I left. Uh, and it's interesting when when you leave. There's actually a because you don't take a lifetime vow as a as a as a monk in that tradition in the Theravada tradition, which is different from uh, you know priests or the Jesuits or the Benedictines. They will go into the monastery for um, you know four or five years to see how well they fit with the community. Then they'll be offered the opportunity if they're ready for it to take a lifetime vow. But in the Buddhist tradition I was in, you take you have a commitment to be there today and the next day. And so every day is like a new commitment to be there. But at any time, you might decide it's time to leave. And But there was a ceremony for leaving, and I handed back the robes. And I, I still maintained some of the vows that I took as a monk. So it was a very beautiful way to leave the monastery and then to be committed to taking that work outside thank you for sharing that i think i think that one of the main vows at least i know from my interfaith training is being compassionate toward others and i think that's something that you exemplify oh well thank you yeah that is one of the things that it actually uh i'm going to tell you a short story when before I'd gone to the monastery, I lived in a, uh, a beach community in, in Southern California. And I remember there was a woman who was, uh, uh, she was homeless. And she had her shopping cart, and she used to hang out in this corner not far from where I lived. And I'd walk over to the grocery store. She was over, always there, very um, disheveled, right? And I remember that was kind of, I didn't have a lot of compassion. I have to say, I was like, oh, she's kind of ruining the the whole impression of her entire, this beautiful beach community. When I came out of the monastery, something had changed in me, and definitely in terms of compassion and love and kindness and, and understanding. And and I, I got to know her and got to talk with her. And when possible, I would I'd, I'd get some food for her from the grocery store. But I learned that she was not much different from me. Uh, she had lived in that beach community herself, and she had undergone a series of unfortunate events that led to her uh, losing her job and her health and losing her apartment there. And here she was on the street. So, you know, I think we can be less judgmental of others and bring a compassionate view, and it can change everything. So it was a, a beautiful lesson for me. As I shared in our introduction, you've authored more than 20 books and CDs on mindfulness, including the award-winning The Mindfulness Toolbox, as well as Clearing Emotional Clutter and The Mindfulness Code. Named as one of the best spiritual books in the respective years they were published, please share a little about each of these, starting with The Mindfulness Toolbox. Well, yeah, the Mindfulness Toolbox was a uh, is a book that is uh, actually one of the top books, I guess, in the psychology field from what I've heard from the publisher, and it it has fifty different uh, ways of using mindfulness for depression, anxiety, uh, stress, post traumatic stress, and uh, so it's a wonderful. A toolbox of skills. I've always been very much into, you know, how can we make mindfulness practical and bring it down to earth in a way that you know, people can get results, right? <clears throat> so these are interventions, are very detailed uh, readings that somebody can go through or practices, and, and and it gives them a little background on it as well. It's being used both by 
Uh, a lot of clinicians have it in their offices, a lot of mental health uh, professionals, and a lot of individuals also get this book for just self-help. <clears throat> uh, the other book you mentioned, The Mindfulness Code. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. That book is filled with a lot of stories. So it has a lot of stories of people I've worked with um, and um a lot of cultural references in that book. It just, I think it's a, a it's a fun read and ta- and brings in, uh, you know, the key core elements of what does it mean to be mindful, getting connected to nature, connected to the spirit, relationships, and um, so it it has a lot of nice. Uh, it's it's kind of like a guidebook, take when, you on your journey. When we see the word code in the title of most books using that word. The implication is something that needs to be deciphered. Is there something to be deciphered with mindfulness? Oh, yes, yes. The, the original meaning of mindfulness, which a lot of people don't know about, the word, the word Sanskrit is the word that is often translated as mindfulness. But the original meaning of that was self-recollection and self-remembrance. So it's kind of like bringing the whole, the fragmented parts of ourselves together, right? And... Um, and that could mean uh, even understanding our our ancestors, right? It could mean understanding what, uh, how can I uh, fit in to my community? So, it, you know, how am I connected to everyone? So it's it's much broader than what we often think of mindfulness as a kind of noticing your thoughts, being aware of the breath, uh, that kind of thing. So it's a much deeper. Uh, idea behind it and and so you know connecting with nature is a big part of that as well clearing emotional clutter was named one of the best spiritual books of 2016 what advice did you offer readers for letting go of emotional baggage well that is an interesting book because it really brings a lot of uh science about epigenetics and um and i think one of the key things in that book that i really like is Fidelity to the moment, right? Uh, not to have your attention be splintered or to be thinking about this and that, or, you know, we're all watching screens on our phones or on the computer and we're getting hundreds of messages, probably thousands of messages a day, pop-up screens and all these kinds of text messages and everything. And we have very little time to reflect inwardly, very little time to uh, take that breath, a conscious breath, Right. Uh, very little time to think about uh, how can I meet this next person uh, in a meaningful way, right? And so we're often uh, kind of into the future, the next thing, the next thing. So this book talks a lot about how to clear a lot of that clutter out and to get into the present moment. Wonderful. Your new book, Travelers, is a novel. Is this your first novel, and why did you choose that form for this book? Well, this is my first novel. I have written fiction before, 
uh, in terms of uh, I used to write for a children's TV show many, many years ago and and um, had a short film produced at one point. But I wrote this novel because I felt, it, you know, it deals with a lot of the same themes that I work with in uh, my nonfiction books, but I felt I could reach a lot of people who maybe aren't reading those kinds of books uh, through a fictional story that has, I think, a lot of truth in it and uh, and to help people gain a new perspective about the spiritual path, uh, about uh, how do you deal with loss and grief, which is one of the themes, and how do you uh, keep love alive in a relationship where you've experienced loss? And what inspired Travelers? Well, I think Travelers was inspired for me by um, by this need to talk about the uh, mental health and how it is has become more mechanized. And what I mean by that is that, uh, you know, people are given a diagnosis, they're, um, and the diagnosis, the diagnostic is important in one sense. Of course, there's something called the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders. So insurance will cover uh, a particular for treatment, right? But you need to give it a diagnosis. And the diagnosis can help um can help clinicians kind of make sense of how the treatment what what do we need to do to treat this person the downside is that it becomes um a label and it becomes a label that somebody can put on themselves i mean i've had clients come to me and they'll say oh i'm a depressive i'm a bipolar i'm a schizophrenic right so they're labeling themselves and limiting putting themselves in a box so to speak Instead of saying, okay, I'm experiencing this right now and how, you know, how can I make greater sense of this and how can I move forward in my life? So, um, so I want to do, and, and that's become more and more prevalent. So I wanted to kind of take, um, therapy out of the stranglehold of the materialistic view of things, right? And to show that uh, we can bring in the spiritual into our healing and that's actually a very important element of it absolutely you know when i was in college in the early 70s i volunteered at a local community mental health center and they had a specific area that was sectioned off where patients who were psychotic what they called psychotic were kept Hmm. and they were treated with a drug i think the thing was called thorazine is that correct thorazine was that yeah, I think, yeah okay. I think so at the time, yeah. And and the doctor who was in charge, I noticed that one of the things they wanted me to do was to sit and listen and, and gently talk with these patients. And the doctor who was the uh, administrator of this organization, I went to him one day and said, I noticed that after you give them the injections of the Thorazine, they're incapable of holding a conversation. How am I supposed to get through to them or, or work with them or help them? Mm. And he said, don't criticize Thorazine. Thorazine is to psychiatric medicine as penicillin was to infectious medicine. And it really sort of rubbed <laughs> me the wrong way. I, I know that that was their practice. I know that that's what we're doing. But how how do you communicate to someone who's uh, so on such a high level of drugs that they can't even communicate? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think there's a better class of drugs now than Thorazine. Uh, the antipsychotics today work in the dopamine pathways of the brain, actually, Victor. And what they do is they kind of, so if somebody's having hallucinations, it kind of just dampens it down so that it is not uh, in, um, interceding in their reality as strongly. And so you could ha- still have that conversation. So, um, you know, it's it, it's it's still very difficult, but you need to have the relationship. And I think that's a key element that you experienced back then is you wanted to have a relationship with someone. And you really can't have healing if you can't communicate. Absolutely. My guest is Donald Altman, his new book, Travelers. Donald, please tell our listeners where they can get your book and find out more about you and your amazing work. Oh, sure. Uh, you can find Travelers at, uh, it's online and Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, independent booksellers will be carrying it. You can go to a book, uh, your bookshop and you can order it if they don't have it in. 
And also, you can find out about my books, my other books, and uh, my online courses and CDs at mindfulpractices.com, M-I-N-D-F-U-L practices.com. And I have a newsletter up there, too, if you want to sign and, and get my monthly newsletter. And we'll be back with more of Donald and Travelers after these words on the OM Times Radio Network. The best of the holistic, spiritual, and conscious world. OM Times Radio. IOM FM. OM Times Magazine is one of the leading online content providers of positivity, wellness, and personal empowerment. A philanthropic organization. Their net proceeds are funneled to support worldwide charity initiatives via Humanity Healing International. Through their commitment to creating community and providing conscious content, they aspire to uplift humanity on a global scale. OM Times, co-creating a more conscious lifestyle. Grab a cup of tea or a glass of wine and tune in for Inspired Conversations with publisher Linda Joy on Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. Linda creates sacred space for leading female luminaries, empowering authors, heart-centered female entrepreneurs, coaches, and healers. A soulful venue where guests openly share the fears and obstacles they've overcome, wisdom and lessons learned, and the personal journey that led them to the transformational work they do in the world. Inspired conversations to empower you on your path to authentic, soulful living. Back on Box Novus, my guest this week, Donald Altman. We're talking about his new book, Travelers. Donald, you talk in the book about quantum consciousness, angels, and even bilocation. How did these figure into the story? And what is your personal experience with these phenomena? Well, uh, yeah, they're key to the story, this idea of uh, uh, what I call the quantum collective in the story and uh, the ideas of you know, bilocation and angels. There's a character in the story that uh, uh, her name is Traveler Jackie. So she's one of the travelers and she does kind of these miraculous things. And the, and the, and the book's central character is a, who's a psychiatrist. So he's very science oriented. And it, it just is more than blowing his mind. He thinks he's losing his grip on reality. Uh, and I don't say whether or not uh, Traveler Jackie is an angel, but uh, she has she's a catalyst for consciousness, for things happening, for connecting in new ways. And I think that's the magic that uh, we sometimes lose today. Because by location, levitation, these are things were considered to be uh, not maybe normal, but they were were accepted back in you know the Middle Ages, and it wasn't unusual for people to say that monks had bilocated; they were in two places at once. And um, even in some of the old Buddhist trainings, you can find where the Buddha actually teaches people how to move through solid move through walls, or to do things we would think is impossible. So this book is a lot about uh, expanding our awareness of consciousness beyond the material, physical capabilities that we have, and seeing another realm, okay? And the psychiatrist in the story is forced to enter this other realm. He doesn't go willingly, and he, but he's forced to enter this collective, but it helps heal, helps heal him. He has lost his daughter in the story. And, and so the grief that he's uh, experiencing, he can't heal himself. Here he is. He's a doctor, a psychiatrist, healing people, but he can't heal himself from this deep wound, this agonizing loss. And it's, and it's, put a wedge between he and his wife. And that's a key part of the story too, is how do we, recover from grief in a family you know in a husband and wife we're just in a family everybody views it differently and for example um the wife wants to keep the daughter's room exactly as it was from the day she died 
and 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 he wants to move on. He's ready to, you know, he, he it's distressing for him to have that room still there. So uh, that's created a wedge. So the idea that what happens as he is entering these new realms of consciousness and is forced to take this mystical journey, uh, he becomes more accepting of the condition and the situation around him. And he starts to realize that his daughter uh, is still with him in spirit in different ways. And he's able to connect uh, with different signals that he's getting with her. So these ideas that some of them are very ancient ideas, but they're around today. And I think, you know, we're in danger of losing our connection to the mystery and the wonder and the awe and the miraculous that is unfolding around us at every moment. You know, one time I, I, you know, I, I used to teach at Lewis and Clark Graduate School of, of Education and Counseling, and I was teaching a course. And As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And I, and I had the group go out. Uh, there was a beautiful grassy field behind the graduate school. And I had them go out. And I said, I want you to just uh, experience the nature as if when you were a child again you know we have this idea of uh you know there's of course the idea of deja vu having been there before so when we first are children and we see that rose we're like oh my god it's incredible look at the coloring and the scent of it it's beautiful right but then as we get older it just is deja vu it's you know oh i've been there before it's just a rose but the french also have a term called jema vu and Jemavu means never having been there before. So this is the kind of like childlike wonderment that we have could have at every moment. So this group went out and they were crawling around. They're they're out looking at the grass and nature. And I noticed that one woman is on all fours, moving very slowly, looking at the grass. And I had no idea what she was doing. Anyway, after 20 minutes, everybody came back in. And I asked to, for some people to share experiences, and her hand shot up. And and so I said, yeah, I'd love to hear what you were doing. I saw you on all fours there, moving very slowly. And she said, "I, uh, the whole 20 minutes, I was watching a worm. <laughs> that may sound funny for our listeners to hear that. But she described how she had kind of lost her sense of self and became almost like one with the worm, all right? And which way was it going to move? And it was the most fascinating, mesmerizing experience for her. So she had regained that childhood wonder where maybe anything was possible. And how how beautiful is that? So I think that that's really at the core of, of uh, this book, is how do we regain that wonder? And that that can be very healing, actually, uh whether whatever struggles you have in life can be very healing in 1969 the british band the moody blues came out with an album called to our children's children's children and there was a song that was in there called the eyes of a child and the lyric said through the eyes of a child 
you must come out and see that your world spinning round and through life you will be a small part of a whole of a love that exists with the eyes of a child you will see. We have to learn to see as children once again, don't we? Well, that is beautiful. Um, I remember, I'm of that era. I remember that album. Yeah. <laughs> and I love the Moody Blues. But uh, yeah. Music with a message, right? Yeah, absolutely. In recent years, we've seen the launch of telehealth services, including those for people with emotional challenges. What are your feelings about the efficacy of remote counseling and therapy? Well, I have some, I have some different thoughts on it. Um, on the one hand, there are people who are located, uh, of course, with, with COVID, that changed the whole landscape of people needing to be separate and to be safer in that way. So that kind of fueled this whole telehealth movement. Uh, before that, it was a, a boon for people who maybe were in rural areas, but who needed help and couldn't easily get to a clinician. Now, I had occasion, I didn't do any telehealth during COVID, but prior to COVID, I had some clients who had moved and I did telehealth with them. And, and I already knew them. I mean, they had been in my office and for me, uh, it was not the same because I couldn't really, even though I could see their face, I couldn't see the whole body. And you want to connect with somebody uh, and experience. I uh, know we have mirror neurons that fire when you're with somebody. And when your mirror neurons move and others, the other person does too, and you can feel what the experience of someone is having. It's a little harder to do when it's on a telehealth screen. Now, on the other hand, I do have to say that uh, I, it's it's better than no therapy, right? I think, and I, I've had people who've said, well, I had a good experience with it. Um, it was more, um, you know, uh, maybe it was a little more mechanical because it, it's, it's, the drive is to give you some manualized information, psychoeducation, and different tools, which are, are useful. But I think that the uh, the deeper, going more deeply, is, is tough to do with telehealth. But it serves a purpose. But I hope it doesn't uh, diminish our desire to actually meet in person with a clinician now that I think uh, people are more inclined, more can, can do it now that COVID is still with us, but not as prevalent. Is there a type of therapy that works best? And what can we do to improve the level of care? You know, that's a great question. Uh, is there a type of therapy that works best? Uh, and I'm inclined, and also I've, there's research, I think, that backs this up inclined to say that it's really the relationship between the therapist and the client or the patient that is most important. So you could use a lot of different modalities, but if there's not a rapport there, if, 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 you know, if somebody feels, well, my, my therapist isn't, isn't really open to me or not accepting or judging me, then it's not going to work. So you need to have this um, uh, really a sense of openness. In fact, there was interesting. There was a study one time, and they actually wanted to see if therapists, uh, counselors who had a mindfulness training, how did that change the therapeutic relationship? And they found that with those people who had that training were perceived by the clients as being more uh, open and accepting uh, and willing uh, to sit with them and just listen and be empathetic. So, the, so I think it's uh, you know I've used a lot of different kinds of of therapeutic methods. I've used cognitive therapy. In fact, I talk about some of these in Travelers in the book. Uh, cognitive therapy, um, uh, internal family systems, dialectical behavior therapy. I mean, there's a whole range of those things. But if you don't have that rapport, uh, it's not going to be as effective. So what can be done in general to improve the quality of care? 
Well, uh, you know, that's a, another really good question. Um, I think we have to, uh, I think, get out of the grip of this, um, you know, materialistic viewpoint. I mean, you can replace a hip. There are a lot of things you can do in surgery, for example, replace different parts of the body. But how do you replace an emotion? So we're we're very complex beings, and um, and our and and consciousness plays a whole a big role in how we're feeling. Right? Everybody's been traumatized in one way or another. Maybe birth itself, just being born, is a kind of trauma. Our parents are not perfect, so we are raised by uh, imperfect beings. We all have flaws, and yet, uh, you know, so how, and we all deal with loss. There isn't anybody with a human mind or a human body that isn't going to lose someone or something uh, in their life, right? So this is the nature of impermanence, and, and so we need to know how to deal with that. So I think helping people uh, learn uh, to have greater self-acceptance, self-compassion for themselves is probably one of the best ways we can help people heal, not to be so hard on themselves. You spoke a couple of times about people who are grieving, and from my practice as an interfaith minister, I know that grieving is a unique and individual process for everyone. How do you approach those who are suffering from grief? Well, one thing I want to do with grief is I don't want to stigmatize anyone and say, oh, that's bad. You've got to, you know, we've got to get over it. And the interesting thing now is that uh, the new, and I mentioned it earlier, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the DSM, for the first time has what they call prolonged grief disorder. In other words, if grief lasts more than a year, it's a disorder. And that's caused a bit of a controversy in the field. And uh, I'm of the belief that that we don't want to stigmatize grief in that way. Uh, I'm glad that it's going to be uh, insurance companies will now pay for that. But uh, I think that grief is a process. And it's in a way, it's a, uh, your grief is a living memorial to those you have lost. And, and I've heard somebody say it was a like a love letter to the to those who we have lost in our lives. And that and that living memorial could last a lifetime. Who are we to say that it's got to end? What I think is important with grief is that while you can experience um, your connection to the one you've lost, you still need to find joy in, the, in life, right? And that person who is gone would want, of course, want you to just continue to find joy and meaning in life. So I don't think it's mutually exclusive. You don't have to be totally uh, obsessed with, and that that's when it's the danger, if you become obsessed with the grief. But to find the middle ground where you can experience and, and have that person, have that loss plant seeds of compassion and recognition of that's exactly why life is so precious. And that's exactly why we need to be grateful for every moment we have with someone. So here I am with you in this moment, Victor, and I'm so grateful that you're uh, sharing this moment with me and that we're connecting. We, we don't know if this moment will ever come again. And so that to me is one of the lessons of grief and that can plant seeds of uh, compassion and recognition of the preciousness of life. One of the things that I share quite often when I officiate funerals, I often find families that have had some type of infighting or falling out. And one of the lessons that the passing of a loved one brings us is that there is no guarantee of tomorrow. And that mm. if you love someone, if they, if you feel that you are perceived that you've been hurt or have hurt someone, Forgive and ask for forgiveness. Do it now. Express the love while you can. Well, that's 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 wise and beautiful. And that's a message that we need to it, it, take to heart, I think, nowadays, especially in these uh, tumultuous times that we're in. 
Absolutely. My guest is Donald Altman. His latest book is called Travelers. We'll be back with more after these words on the OWN Times Radio Network. Humanity Healing International is a small nonprofit with a big dream. Since 2007, HHI has been working tirelessly to bring help to communities with little or no hope. Our projects are not broad mandates, nor are they overnight solutions, but they bring the reassurance that no one is alone and that someone cares. To learn more, please visit HumanityHealing.org. Humanity Healing is where your heart is. Hello, I'm Sandy Sedgbeer, host of Om Times Magazine's flagship radio show, What is Going On? My passion is sifting through information, research and innovations from new thought teachers, speakers and researchers pushing back the boundaries of what we know about life, energy, metaphysics and the universe. I love shifting perceptions about who we are, why we're here and how quickly impossible becomes normal when we open our minds, expand our awareness and accept that the only limits that exist are those we place upon ourselves. So if you're the kind of forward-thinking, eager investigator of what lies beyond the current reality that most perceive, why not make a date to come play with me in the field of possibilities at 4pm Pacific Time, 7pm Eastern Time every Thursday. And together, we can discover what's really going on. If I could be you. And you could be me. For just one hour. If you could find a way. To get inside. Each other's mind. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. Walk a mile in my shoes. We've all felt left out. And for some, that feeling lasts more than a moment. We can change that. Learn how at belongingbeginswithus.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Walk a mile in my shoes. Back on Fox Novus, my guest this week is Donald Altman. His new book is called Travelers. Donald, you work with people that may have a different philosophy, religious background than what you bring to the table. How do they react to ancient Eastern practices? It's really funny, Victor. Sometimes I've gotten some pushback. And I remember a lady who came to see me because I used to do a lot of work in the mindful eating field. And um, so a lady came to see me and she said, you know, I, and she, in fact, she was a mental health practitioner. And she said, I have a uh, eating problem. And uh, so I wanted to come to you and thought you could help me with that. And I said, sure thing. We could do some mindful eating practices. And she stopped me right there. I remember she held up her hand and said, you know, I, I'm not really comfortable with that. I grew up in a very, um, uh, religious background and so we never i'm just not comfortable with the word mindfulness and i said okay uh, we'll never use that word <laughs> so i talked about uh focus i talked about attention i talked about uh using the breath and calming down in all different ways without uh, using mindfulness and what i found is we want to really adapt uh this to and expand our vocabulary of what it means. You know, one time I was doing a workshop in Hawaii uh, on in Honolulu, and uh, a native Hawaiian woman came up to me at the break time, and she said, you know, we have a word for mindfulness. It's, it's built into our language, Hawaiian. It's called nalu. And I was like, oh, what, what does that mean? And she said, nalu means not too fast, not too slow, in the flow. Mm. And I thought how wonderful that they had this. So, you know, we need to open up uh, and think about how we can connect with other people. And um, because really, you know, we've got all these different traditions and they have all different names, but they're all leading up uh, to the, the mountain and to the same place, right? And so uh, it, it's just a matter of learning how to adapt what we're talking about. So. And being sensitive to that, because people do have uh, predisposed ideas, maybe, about uh, bringing another idea, another tradition into their life. Absolutely. And for some people, tradition is the framework through which they live their lives. 
Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so we want to honor and respect that. Uh, and yet at the same time, give people you know, other options, other ways of, re- of responding to, to life events. Yeah, absolutely. Why do we seem to have evolved or devolved into a nation and culture with so many angry and unhappy people? And how may we resolve this? Well, that's a really tough question, isn't it? I think that a lot of maybe how we're using technology is not serving us well. Uh, I think technology has a great benefit, and but it allows us also to 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 maybe uh, anonymously put something up or anonymously criticize, right? And there's a lot of cyberbullying that you find in schools and. Uh, so I think part of it is just we need to come back to, uh, uh, you know, this kind of civility and respect and openness uh, to listening to others. So it's about how can we learn to listen, right, and just set our own uh, preconceived ideas aside for a moment. Because, you know, it's this idea that, uh, you know, if a cup is filled to the top, let's say a, a teacup's full of the top with tea, there's no space for any more tea to go in there. In the same way, if your cup is filled up with your ideas all the way to the brim, then there's no space for anyone else's ideas to come in. So it's about emptying our cup in some way, right? How can we allow space for the ideas of others? And so just to sit and listen. And and I think listening is uh, or hearing is not is appreciated maybe it's all about giving our opinions and being oh look look at me right here's my idea instead of really just listening and stepping back and so that's again that's about reflection and about opening up the space it's about silence stillness and uh allowing all the static in our mind all those and thousands of thoughts we have each day to kind of settle so we can make space to take in something else. I used to be someone who would engage in a conversation and would not really truly listen to the person or what they were saying. And one day I had an inner voice say, don't respond, listen. And that started Mm. a major change. That was in my mid-30s. That started a major change in my life. Uh, probably opening me up to the person that I've become in, in, in since that time and today. Um, but we really have to learn. Tr- truly listening is a sacred act, isn't it? I think you can say that it's very sacred because you're uh, you're letting the other person into you in a sense, right? And you're communing. It's a, it's a kind of communion with another being. And uh, so it it is very sacred. You know, I had uh, workshops where I would have people sit in three minutes in silence with with another person. And it was very frightening for a lot of people just to sit in silence and to sit facing, you know, eyeball to eyeball. Um, and I set it up in a way that I made it less uh, scary. You know, I, I shared a story about the three questions that um, Tolstoy wrote a story back in the 1880s called The Three Questions. And I, so I kind of primed them for sitting together like that. But afterwards, I have to tell you, it was so incredible. I'd have people share their experiences. And some people said they just had tears in their eyes. Some people said it was like looking at a mirror and they lost themselves and they saw the, themselves in this other person. Now, I'm not suggesting that our listeners go out and grab your your uh, partner and say, hey, let's sit down for three minutes and just look at each other in silence, <laughs> because that might uh, that'd be like a deer in the in the headlights experience. But uh, but I think that your your point about just listening and making it a sacred act is would be a beautiful thing. You talked about cyberbullying are our cell phones and computers and technology dehumanizing us well i th- i think they can it you know it depends on how we use anything so it's it's uh you can use something in a you can set the right boundaries for it and you can use it in a way that doesn't take you out of this present moment as much or you can be present while you're using it 
I've often thought if people were present before they hit send on a, on an email, they'd be a lot happier. Some people send an email and they regret it afterwards. So it's about our presence. So I, yeah, I think it, it can dehumanize us if we're if we're out of balance with it. And so we need to uh, be um, uh, not have it control us, but see that it's a tool that we can control. You had talked earlier about working in mindful eating. In the early 1960s, I attended a summer camp, and one of the counselors turned out to be a practicing Buddhist. Uh, when we would have lunch, he would go off and sit quietly by himself uh, by a tree while he was eating. And I asked him about this one day, and he said it was called mindful eating, and he invited me to join him. I guess he was my first mindfulness teacher. Please share with our listeners how they may engage in mindful eating. Well, I think mindful eating is a wonderful practice. And a couple things you can do for mindful eating is, one, be aware of your hunger. You know, notice if am I eating uh, because I'm just so hungry now and I'm what's going to happen is you're going to choose foods that are maybe not the best for you. You're going to grab anything that's right there. So getting to be aware of your hunger signals, that's a mindful awareness practice right there. Uh, Secondly, I would say uh, learn to appreciate that food. I mean, how intimate is it that you're taking a substance and you're putting it in your mouth and you're absorbing it? It's becoming part of you. So learning to appreciate that, uh, whether it's a strawberry or whatever this food is, all the effort that went into growing this, the water, the sunlight, the human uh, effort, the packaging, the shipping, all of that is included in this morsel of food that you're eating right now. I remember when he taught me, one of the things that he said is, how often have you tasted what you're eating? And I said, what do you mean? Mm. He said, how often have you tasted what you're eating? And in thinking about it, I realized that at times I ate so fast, I actually did not have the opportunity to savor the flavors of what I was enjoying. Mm. Yeah, we have actually like 10,000 taste buds. We even have taste buds on our tongue. We have have taste buds on the roof of the mouth. So what I'll do is I have somebody do a mindful eating exercise. I'll have them see if they can taste the food on the roof of the mouth. I'll have them notice where on the tongue is the flavor most intense or least intense. And um, I'll notice, I'll have them select, as you're chewing it, select where you want to chew the food. When do you want to swallow it? I mean, there's a lot of things we can do. We can decide upon, even with one little bite, all the selections we can make about that. In fact, so chewing your food longer, for example, there's an enzyme in our uh, called amylase in our saliva, and that actually helps pre-digest carbohydrates, for example. So you're not getting all the nutrients. There's also the idea of are you you know what's are, are just you're are you eating to eat or eating to live or living to eat, <laughs> right? And um, sometimes when we eat emotionally, we need to stop and feel, uh, you know, what is, this is not physical hunger, right? It's an emotional hunger. And understanding that when you have an emotional hunger, you can try to label that, give it a name. What are you feeling that you're trying to cover up by eating? What emotion are do you have so there are a lady that i worked with who um she would binge eat and she would go to a drive-through a food drive-through and she would eat copious amounts of order copious amounts of like two three thousand uh, calories of food at one time to make this feeling that she had go away and i said look the next time you go up to the parking lot to order the food i want you to just pause and give a name to that feeling that you have. And she did it. And she came back and she said, you know, I sat in the parking lot for 40 minutes and I realized finally I gave that feeling feeling a name and it was loneliness. And I realized food isn't going to make loneliness go away. And she drove back home. Wonderful. The wisdom of my guest, Donald Altman, his new book, Travelers. Donald, please tell our listeners one more time where they can get your books and find out more about you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So you can get my books and travelers at uh, um, online at Amazon, um, Barnes & Noble, on the independent booksellers uh, sites. 
Uh, you can go to your retail bookseller, bookshop if you want, and they should be able to order it for you. And uh, you can find more out about my own work and my all my books at mindfulpractices.com. And again, that's M-I-N-D-F-U-L practices.com. I have a newsletter that comes out and you can subscribe for that on that site as well. Donald, thank you for this wonderful conversation. Well, thank you, Victor. It's been a lot of fun and, uh, and I really appreciate the work that you're doing. Thank you, Donald. And thank you for joining us on Vox Novus. I'm Victor, the voice Furman. Have a wonderful week. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.